Please have a seat. This time, if you'd turn in your Bibles to the second chapter of Philippians, we find ourselves in verses 14 through 18 this morning. I'll also mention now that if, uh, if you wouldn't mind uh, fill, filling out the uh, fellowship pads that are on the inside of the aisles and sending those down the, the line, we'd, we'd love to communicate with you, especially if you're, you're visiting. Let's come now before God's holy and inerrant word then in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This is God's word. Let's come before him and ask for his help as we speak about it. Father, we come this morning and it is... True that we come from a number of different places this morning, and you know all of those places from which we come. You know the doubts that lie in our hearts. You know the discouragement that we face in our lives. You know the hope that we are clinging to. Father, we ask that you would use your word in our lives that you would use it to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would show us this morning that as a people we are far more sinful than we could have ever imagined about ourselves. For us to even have a glimpse at the nature of our hearts would frighten us, would terrify us even. But we pray that you would Help us to see this morning that because of your intervention, because of what you have done in history in the sending of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are also far more loved and accepted and secure in Him than we could have ever dreamed. We pray now that you who spoke the world into existence, That you who spoke and by the power of your voice the dead were raised to life. We pray that you would give to us your spirit that we might hear your voice. That we wouldn't hear the voice of a man but that we would hear the voice of our God. And that it would bring about the change and the transformation that you desire. It's in Jesus name that we pray. Amen. I have this uh, this thing I do with my children whenever we're we're going somewhere, and we will be riding in our cool minivan, and um, they're all in the back in their car seats and everything. And um, we'll be going to church, or we'll be going to the store, or to visit so and so. Um, and 
and I'll, I'll, I'll say this to my kids, you know, I'll say, you know, let's, let's talk about this before we, before we get here. Um, you know, and, I, and I've done it so many times that now I just ask my, my children, I say, I say, who are we? And uh, Kennedy is usually the, uh, the first to pipe up with an answer, and she'll say, we're Turquoise and we're Christians. And, uh, and the next question out of my mouth is, um, and what does that mean, though? You know, what does it mean that we're Turquoise? What does it mean that we claim to be Christians? And the response is pretty simple. It's, that means we don't disobey, <laughs> we don't throw fits, and we're respectful. Um, and uh, I've mentioned this to a few of you. Uh, when this happens on occasion, my son will throw in his two cents and he'll say something like, Daddy, I'm not a Christian. I'm a boy. Um, we've drilled in his being a boy. And we're working with him that you can be both boy and Christian. But, um, you know, I'm trying to make a very simple point with this il- illustration. That is, you know, why, why do I tell my kids who they are before I tell them what to do? You know, better yet, why do I tell my kids, you know, you're turquoise? Um, it's because I, I know what you know. Children represent and reflect their parents for for good or for bad. And it's not a one plus one equals two thing, but I want my kids, I want my kids to know that when they leave my presence, they are taking my name with them. They're taking my name with them. And, And that means something to me. So here in this passage, we're in this passage where God tells his children how to live. And what I want you to see is that his children are to live in such a way that they reflect the glory and the grace of their Father in heaven. Uh, In fact, this passage that we just read says that they are to stand out, that they are to shine like stars in the universe. And I want you to pay close attention to what I'm about to say, or or else I don't think you're going to appreciate this. God appeals to us as his children in this passage. You know, this is rich, rich imagery throughout the Bible. And God is saying when he calls us his children, he is saying, you are mine. You are purchased with the blood of my son, Jesus Christ. And he's saying, you have been brought into my family and you bear the family name. You know, just last week, we looked in the verses preceding this and we said that for us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling really means that we are to work with an awe that we are fully known and that we are fully loved by our God. And here it is. God is saying, you are my children. You are known and loved by him. And God is saying in this passage, you are to live differently because you are different. You bear my name. And so I want us just to consider three points this morning. I want us to see in this passage the character of God's children, the testimony of God's children, and the grip of God's children. So look with me here first to see the character of God's children. What we're told about the character of God's children in verse 14 is that we are to do everything without complaining or arguing. And the truth is that most of us look at that and we probably think, well, it's not really that big of a deal. Um, you know, other things like murder and adultery and, and theft, th- those, are, those are big things. But 
complaining and arguing, I mean, it just doesn't seem that, that bad to us, right? And part of the reason I think that, that we don't see it as really the big deal that it, that it really is, is because I think we are so used to complaining. And we're so used to arguing, uh, grumbling and murmuring. I mean, Americans, you know, when we, and it's true, we are faced with very difficult times in our economy right now. But we are the, we are the most affluent we are among the most affluent and wealthy people that have ever lived in the history of the world. And yet at the same time, at the same time that we have so much materialistically, it, we could easily be described as the people who complain the most about everything. And, and I want to convince you, I want to try to convince you that that really isn't a small thing. Because what... Because God sees it very differently than we see it. You see, God sees it as a rebellion against His grace and His mercy. You know, when Paul mentions complaining and arguing, he's using words that are meant to draw up in your memory the nation of Israel. These words are really grumbling and murmuring. And you're supposed to recall the little, this little nation, Israel. You remember the story of Israel, right? I mean, here's this little nation, and they find themselves enslaved in Egypt. And the Pharaoh of Egypt was killing their children. They were being beaten and they were broken with hard labor. They were oppressed. They were held against their will. But an amazing thing happened in their history. And it was this, that God showed up. And he intervened that he heard their cry for mercy. And he set them free. They were now his children. I mean, that's the imagery. They escaped from Egypt, right? And you got all these stories and they're, they're fleeing Egypt. And then, you know, the Red Sea engulfs their, their pursuers and, and crushes them. And they're, they're delivered. Um, I mean, this awesome, incredible deliverance. And what you would expect would be just unbelievable gratitude and love coming from this little nation. But all of a sudden, they're in the wilderness, right? And you know the story. In the wilderness, delivered from their slavery, they're complaining and arguing, murmuring and grumbling. I I mean, they started saying things even like, I wish we were back in Egypt. At least we had good food in Egypt. I mean, can you imagine what they are saying to God there? I mean, that's a rebellion against his grace and his mercy. And you know the story. God wasn't happy at all with their complaining and their arguing. He made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years because of it. Why does God take, take this so seriously? It's because you're complaining and my complaining and our arguing, it's saying we don't believe that God is good to us. That's what it's saying. It is deep ingratitude in the face of God's saving grace. It's saying, I think I deserve something better than what you're doing for me right now in my life. And what's going on when when you complain? Because it's not as, as simple as you think at first. What you're really saying is, if God loved me, if he really loved me, this wouldn't be happening to me. You're saying, if God really cared about me, then I wouldn't be going through this. You know, if Israel's complaining in the Old Testament was bad, and it was, I mean, what do you think about it on this side of the cross? Because Jesus has come 
God took on flesh and he entered into our sorrows. He took up our infirmities, placed upon him was our, were our transgressions and our iniquities. He was made like us so that he could go to the cross, be beaten beyond recognition, that he could die in our place. He set us free from a life of slavery. Do we live before this God? I think Paul is asking this question. Do you live before this God, constantly complaining about your circumstances and about your experiences in this life? You see, the essence of complaining and arguing is that we think we deserve something better than this, whatever this is. God's children are to live in gratitude and thankfulness before him. So here's the question I think that we have to ask ourselves. How do we get to a place? I mean, how do we get to a place where we can stop complaining and arguing? I mean, how how does someone like me, how does someone like me who just seems so natural to complain about the things in my life, how do we get there? The only thing that is going to shut down our complaining is the cross of Jesus. And here's how I think it shuts down our complaining. It's because when you look at the cross, you are to see this is what you deserve. You're complaining because you think you deserve something better. And in the cross of Jesus, you look and see this is actually what you deserve. And see, the cross also says this to you. It says you have received because of the cross far more than you could have ever dreamed. You are God's children because of what Jesus has done. You see, the way you and I build into our lives this character of gratitude is really by looking at the cross. I got to know this guy when I was in in college, and he was one of the strangest men I've ever met. And uh, he was was like in his 30s when he started college. And um, in in his younger days, he, he had all these crazy stories. In his younger days, he was actually a a drug addict, and he was a thief, among other things, until God got a hold of him and changed him. And there were, there were just so many things about this guy. His name was George, by the way. Um, but so many things about him that confused me. Um, one of those things was that when he was in his 20s, he was arrested for a crime, and he was thrown in prison for, I think, five years. And um, the interesting thing was that he was arrested and he was convicted for a crime he didn't commit. And um, when he told me this, I I fully expected that he would be a little bitter about this injustice, right? Um, And so, like I'm prone to do, I just bluntly asked him, I was like, are you bitter about that? Um, Is there some anger I should know about here? Um, And and here's how he confused me, because he said, he said, at that time in my life, he said, he said, I just figured I kind of deserved to be in jail whether I, whether I did the crime or not. I'd done so many bad things. And um, I was just like, I don't understand you. I mean, how could you say that? But, but it's kind of like Paul in verse 17 when he says, Even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice of service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And you want to say, what? I mean, do you know what he's saying? He's saying, even if I'm about to die, 
I am glad and I rejoice with you. Not complaining about what might be in his future, but glad and rejoicing. I mean, how do you do that? How do you look at injustice? How do you look at possibly death in the face and not complain? When, when I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm wanting to complain about the fact that my TiVo didn't record my, my show like it was supposed to. You know, and complaining about my, my taxes that are too high. It, you can only live like this. When your eyes are fixed on Jesus, when your eyes find their rest on the cross of Jesus, you can only live like that when you understand what you really deserve and what has been given to you instead. The children of God are to live in such a way that they reflect the glory and grace of their Father in heaven. And God says that this kind of response actually produces something in your life. It produces purity and blamelessness in your life right there in verse 15. He says, so that you live like this without complaining and arguing, so that in order that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. See, God's children are different. We were slaves rescued by the blood of Jesus. And so Paul is is saying, because of this, you are called to live differently, out of gratitude. Okay. So you've got to follow the logic of this passage. We're to do everything without complaining and arguing. Then verse 15, so that you become blameless and pure without, uh, pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. In other words, he's saying this. When you live differently, you are going to stand out in a crooked and depraved generation. There will be a noticeable difference in the lives of God's children. They will stand out like stars in the dark night sky with their blamelessness and their purity. So here we're at the second point, the testimony of God's children. Let me just say this at the beginning. You are called to live this way, Paul says, in a crooked and depraved generation. In other words, you are not called to leave this crooked and depraved generation, but to live completely differently in the midst of it. You know, to call this world crooked and depraved is is really a pretty good description. It's a twisted and perverted and broken and rebellious world that we live in. I mean, all you got to do is turn on the news when you get home. And you see the rape, the murder, the child abuse, and on and on and on. It's a dark and backwards world. And you're supposed to read this and think about the scariness of this world that we live in. And what God does is He calls us to live in the midst of that scary and broken world. Yet I think this is true of most of us. We want to run from it. We want to get away from it, as far away from the brokenness as we can. Most of us simply want to find a safe place where we can huddle together and be protected from this crooked and depraved generation. We're scared to engage our broken world, and so we withdraw from it. We, here's what we do. We stand safely from the side and we kind of point fingers at it. We say, those people, that stuff, bad, bad, bad. And yet, you know, I remember a preacher named Alistair Begg saying something like this to his congregation. He said this, a Christianity that stops at the doors of the church is absolutely pathetic and useless. You and I have been called to live in the world and yet not be a part of the world. To live in a crooked and yet depraved generation and yet be without fault in it. To be blameless and pure. And when this happens, the children of God shine like stars in the universe. You don't see stars. 
You don't see stars in the daytime. I mean, maybe somebody can tell me something about a telescope later, but I think Paul is saying you don't see them during the day. You see them when it's dark. And you and I have to understand that the best place to see grace is in the darkness. And what the world needs to find in its misery is grace. Mercy in the misery of life and hope in the midst of hopelessness. Now, I'm fairly certain that Paul's using this imagery of stars to make us think about the way in which ships would navigate in this time. I mean, ships in this time depended on the stars to get from one point to another in the, in the night. You know, that without the stars, it was dangerous business to be out sailing at night. The stars were there to guide you to safety. And so Paul, I think, is saying this is how the testimony of God's children works. When the world looks at God's children and sees this different, how his children live with thankful hearts, how their lives reflect purity and blamelessness, how there's no cause for blaming them. When the world sees this difference, they are being pointed, they are being directed to the only place that safety can be found, and that is in Jesus. God calls his children to shine into the emptiness and loneliness, into the twistedness and the brokenness of this world so that they would point people to Jesus. And I guess my point is this. In order to do that, you have to be in it. You cannot do this from a distance. You have to be in it to do this. You know, I've had the opportunity feel really sorry for me here. <laughs> I've had the opportunity to go sailing a few times in the British Virgin Islands and um, with some friends of mine. And I can't begin to describe to you how glorious those trips are. But what I want to tell you about, um, we'll save that for another illustration at some point. But what I want to tell you about is the plane ride into those islands. Because first you take a, a, a plane to Puerto Rico. And then you get, uh, get on the smaller plane, which takes you to Tortola Island. And you're flying across the ocean in the middle of the night to this tiny little island. And when you look outside your windows, you don't see, obviously, you don't see the the headlights of cars and buildings. It's just black. Total blackness out in the middle of nowhere. You can see nothing. And, you know, you're flying along in this plane, and then all of a sudden you can feel, you know, you're beginning your descent you can feel the pressure change and all that, and you're coming down, and you've been coming down for a while, and you're nervously looking out the window, and still all you see is nothing but blackness, complete dark. And, and you know, you know, I, I find myself as I'm sitting in this plane, I, I really hope we're not going to be making a landing on the water because um, I don't see anything out there. And, um, you know, finally, I mean, it's, it is seconds before you touch down. You look out your window and you see the runway lights right there. I mean, probably five seconds before you hit the ground do you see, see land. It's actually kind of a scary experience for me. But you see, here's what I'm trying to say. From where I sit, I cannot see what the pilot sees. Because you see, in the midst of that darkness, where I'm confused and I'm lost, the pilot is following that strip of lights to safety. He's following that strip of lights in the complete and utter darkness to safety. God's children are to shine like stars in the universe and we are to stand out. But I don't want you to be confused. 
it isn't so that you would call attention to you, but so that you would call attention to Jesus. You see, stars aren't the place of safety. They only guide to it. How, listen, how many times have you thought, what difference does it make? I mean, what difference does it make if I steal these hours from my boss? What difference does it make if I just happen to spin the truth just a little bit? What difference does it make if I look at that website or not? What difference does it make if I treat those people with respect or not? The gospel is intended to make us new people, different people who stand out and point to a God of mercy, full of grace and full of compassion, to point those without hope to the only one who can give hope, to Jesus. Okay, finally, I come to the last point, which is the grip of God's children. In my version, verse 16 reads, as you hold out the word of life. And and another translation that I think is better is really this, as you hold on to the word of life. Um, That preposition could be translated either way. But I think in this passage, Paul is saying, as he gets to this point, he's saying, how do you do this? I mean, how do you live lives of gratitude? Producing blamelessness and purity. How do you stand out differently from the world around you? And how do you live in the midst of it and still be different? You see, you have this changed character and you have this call to shine like stars, but how do you do it? And Paul says you do it by holding fast to the gospel. That's the word of life. It's simply a way for Paul to describe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be holding on to Jesus, he's saying. And I think this fact deserves repeating over and over and over again to us. Because all of us in this room, we tend to forget it. We hear stop complaining. We hear, you know, blamelessness and purity and all this kind of stuff. And we think, okay, grit our teeth. We're going to try hard this time, you know. But you cannot do it, Paul says, unless you are gripping as tightly as you can the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel, he's saying, doesn't just bring life where there is death. It certainly does that. But the gospel also sustains life. It's the gospel that causes us to grow as God's people. Surely you have thought, like I have thought many a time, why is it that when I became a Christian, God just didn't make me perfect? I mean, why didn't he just take away all of your struggles? Why didn't he just take away all of your temptations and all of your failures? And I think the answer is that he is teaching you in the midst of life that you cannot let go of Jesus. You see, that's where your failures and your sin and your temptations lead you, don't they? They lead you to cry out to Jesus. To grab hold again and again of the gospel promises that God will never leave you nor forsake you. That God has dealt with your sin completely, past, present, and and future in the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ. That God has clothed you in the very righteousness of Christ. But see, most of us, I think, are so dead set against being needy. We barely know how to ask for help from one another. We want to be self-sufficient. We want to imagine that we aren't helpless. But Paul says you cannot be different from a crooked and depraved generation until you are holding on to something that is different. Paul is clear about why you should hold on to the word of life. He says in verse 16, In order, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ, 
that I did not run or labor for nothing. In other words, he's saying, hold on to the gospel. Hold on to it tightly. Because on the day of Christ, I want to boast in the fruitfulness of the gospel ministry. It's the gospel that produces fruit that's worth boasting about on the day of Christ. There's something I I want to tell you about myself. Um, I am terrified of heights. I, I have recurring nightmares about heights. I have this one dream that I have, and I wake up in a cold sweat afterwards. And I can, I can see myself in my dream, and I'm on the edge of a cliff or on the top of a building or something. And in my dream, I see myself on the ground crying. <laughs> and there is, there, let me tell you, there is nothing that is probably worse for your ego as a man than to have a dream of yourself crying um, because you're scared. But, um, you know, in my first job out of college, I was a youth director at a church in Prattville, Alabama. And we went, we took the youth of the church to this camp where they did this ropes course thing. And you go out in the woods and they got a climbing tower and they got zip lines, all of this stuff that is high up in the trees, right? And um, so I avoided the entire activity. I would make an excuse for every activity. And finally, I was shamed by like, you know, 12 and 13-year-olds to finally do something. And so so I did. I, there was this, uh, this thing that was basically, it was a telephone pole, and it had pegs on it. And, and the go- they would strap you into this harness thing, and you would, the goal was to climb to the top of this this telephone pole, and when you got to the top of the pegs, you were supposed to stand on top of the telephone pole. And you were to jump from that telephone pole to a trapeze that's hanging from another tree and grab on to that trapeze. And so finally, I made it to, um, to the top of this thing. It took me an awful long time to do that. Um, but I did it. I got to the top, and, and I finally jumped. And I grabbed the trapeze. In fact, in this group of people that went on this trip, I was the only one to successfully grab the trapeze without falling, without slipping. And not only did I not fall off, but, you know, it took me a long time to get the courage to jump because I'm so scared of heights. But the thing that took far the longest was this guy on the ground trying to convince me that it was okay to let go and be lowered to to the ground. I was holding that thing as tightly as I possibly could hold it. Why do you think I was the only one in my group not to slip off of that trapeze when I grabbed it? Why did it take me so long to be convinced to let go of it? Let me put it to you like this. I had a little bit more motivation than the rest of the group. I mean, I was scared. I grabbed it as tightly as I could possibly grab it, and I did not want to let it go. I mean, in my mind, the guy on the ground that was asking me to let go of that thing, he was asking me to let go of the only thing I knew that was keeping me alive. How tightly are you clinging to Jesus? That's the question. Because if you are clinging to anything else, you will not have a character that is marked by deep gratitude. And you will not be a people who are producing purity and blamelessness if you are not grabbing tightly the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, even if you say, well, I'm just going to be moral and 
I'll grab onto that. That'll be the thing that I grab onto tightly. Morality, for morality's sake. I'm telling you, you will not be different. You will be just as twisted and as perverse as the world around you. You can only be different as God's children when you are clinging to Jesus. And so here we are. This is how the character and testimony of God's children, how it really is produced, it's formed when you are holding on to Jesus for life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we recognize that we are broken. And that we live in the midst of a world that is crooked and depraved. And yet we long to be different. We long for what is said in these verses to be true about us. That we would shine like stars in the darkness. God, I pray for all of us this morning that we would learn that the only way to be different is when we are clinging to something different. Father, I pray for all of us that you would show us the depths of our sin in order that we might grab tightly the Lord Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose from the grave in our place. Not just so that we would have a different future, but so that in the here and now, in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation, we would be different, for we are your children. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.